back them dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Help Bill Boy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Well I've Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep in the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. I'm Zachary Scott Johnson. On today's episode we have a discussion of Meryl's problematic but interesting 1996 film Before and After which co-stars Liam Neeson. We had the good fortune to interview Julia Weldon who co-starred in this movie and we're putting that up as a separate episode. It will be released at the same time as this episode, so please look for an interview with Julia Weldon, which is another episode of this podcast. As always, I invite you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. That really does help. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at MerylStreetPodcast at gmail.com. We're ready to start the show. Welcome back, everybody, to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you today, Meryl McNally? I am very well. How are you, Zach? I'm doing good. We had another short hiatus since our last one, but we're back and we're talking about before and after. Yes. Which is Uh, an interesting movie. (laughs) A gem. (laughs) What have you been up to since uh, we last spoke? I went to our, our friend from college's wedding in North Dakota, right. Tammy and Adam. Congratulations. Yep. It was a, it was a beautiful wedding. And then um, I have been working like crazy on our uh, theater company's production of Peter and the Starcatcher, which opens uh, end of August. So Nice. And then in the middle of that, how about you? What have you been up to? Well, you know what? We have been, you've, we've talked about, I think, the fact that you guys are doing Peter and the Starcatcher, but it's been a while since we actually talked about your theater company. I think we should, I mean, I put it in the show notes every week, but I think you should give people the uh, website and everything for people who, you never know who's, uh, you know, in the general area who might be able to come see it. Yeah, absolutely. It's Neverland Theater Company, and the website is NeverlandTheaterCompany.com, and it's theater with a T-R-E instead right. of a T-E-R. That's really been, it's, it's turned out to have really thrown people off. Uh, um, you know, we, we started about a year ago. We had our one-year anniversary in May. Our first show was a massive production of Shrek the Musical, which went uh, really well. We had record-breaking audiences for Roswell. For those of you who don't know, I live in Roswell, New Mexico, and we have about 50,000 people. And and the population has stayed 50,000 for, I don't know, the last 50 years. It's not, you know, Roswell chugs along and stays consistent with itself. Um, So, um, you know, to get... To get you know 750 people in one room for a show was a was a big deal for Roswell. It doesn't usually happen, and we were really excited about that. And so our next show is Peter and the Starcatcher, which is um, um, it was a show on Broadway, and it's sort of a Peter Pan origin story. But we have treated it like an acting workshop for 10 to 18 year olds. So we have a cast of about 11 um, 11 kids ranging from 10 to 18, and they're brilliant. They are so. I'm so excited for people to see them. Cool. Sounds cool. Yeah. Yeah. So do people not leave New Mexico or do people uh, not come into New Mexico or Roswell, I should say? 
Why has it been 50,000 people for the last 50 years? So Roswell is is in the southeast corner of New Mexico, and it's 200 miles from anywhere. Um, It's Albuquerque and Santa Fe north, Lubbock, Lubbock east, Las Cruces south. And it just, um, its geographic location makes it difficult. Um, But also New Mexico is, um, it's an impoverished state, and I mean, we, we hit 50th in education recently. We are now at the bottom of the barrel in terms of our level of education, and mm. it's very difficult to get workforce here. So we just don't we don't tend to build any any industry. Um, uh, for instance, for me, I'm an attorney. Ba- basically, attorneys, doctors, and the medical field are really sort of the industries that that sustain here um you know insurance things people need but there's not a lot of business growth it just but it's um it's a big retirement town it is beautiful Mm -hmm. um you know they planted a they planted a lot of like trees during the um works project administration during the 30s during the depression and so you know it, it has a sleepy town kind of feel uh, despite its <laughs> despite its size, it feels very small. Yeah, so it's an interesting place, and of course, we're famous for our UFOs. Yes, well, of the course, UFO crash in the forties, and so we actually this past weekend was the UFO festival, which um, um, had the largest. We had about fifty thousand people come to Roswell. Wow, wow. So yeah. New Mexico. Yeah, every hotel booked out. It's crazy. Wow, that's that is something. That um, yeah. New Mexico is so beautiful, and it's so underappreciated and underrated. I think I was literally talking about this with somebody last night. I'm working on a show right now, and. Um, our, our pedal steel player is from Austin, Texas. He came up from Austin, Texas. And I used to live, as you know, in, in the Phoenix area. I haven't lived there for a while now. I've lived in Minnesota for a while, but I used to live in right. Phoenix. So we started talking about, you know, somebody was talking to us about the weather or whatever, as people tend to do. And it became the whole dry heat conversation, mostly because it's so humid uh-huh. in the Midwest right now. And uh, somebody was like, well, right. you know, like, where is the perfect spot? And I, of course, said, well, like Los Angeles, of course, is like just always beautiful. And then we all kind of agreed, like New Mexico really is kind of like the area where, you know, it's so beautiful. Although you guys do get major temp- temperature fluctuations, too. It's it people who've not been to the desert often don't realize like how cold it is possible to get in the desert, you know, like people just think it's hot all the time and it's, it's not. But, um, anyway, I was talking last night with somebody about how great New Mexico is. It is. It's stunning. It's a really beautiful state and it's very geographically diverse. Yes. You've got, um, you know, the mountains, the, the desert, you've got farmland, um, yeah, it, it changes quite a bit. Down here in the southeast, we're, we're really high high desert, and um, uh, some of it is, I mean, almost looks like the Great Plains. You know, there's not a lot of trees. There's a lot of there's a lot of brush, a lot of grass, or rolling grass hills. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of ranching down here. Yeah, well, it's is, it's beautiful, which is neat. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, and they, you know, they film movies here like crazy. And yes. We get 70, you know, 70% of our year is sunshine. So, right. Um, yeah, I encourage people to come and check it out. Pour your money into New Mexico, people. <laughs> New, New Mexico and Atlanta 
like Georgia are, are really the places yeah. where a lot of movies are being made at this point and Canada, you know, to a certain degree too, but those are, those are two major hubs at this point, which is interesting. I think, um, I was, I, I, we don't want to, we have a, another segment to get to before we talk about our movie here, but, um, I was particularly yeah. interested in your point of view as a lawyer. Um, you know, when we talk about before and after I did think, well, you know, this has some legal, uh, complications in this movie, and I thought Meryl might have something to say about this one. But uh, before we get to that, let's do our our first segment, which is what have you been watching since we last talked? Have you been watching anything particularly interesting? Okay, so I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I am I'm a masterpiece junkie. So yep. um, masterpiece theater, masterpiece mystery, and I have taken a pretty long hiatus, um, really since. Uh, Victoria ended and um, I finally realized that Masterpiece was sort of you know back up and running with several shows and so I caught up on Grantchester which is a really really lovely show and then um, I finally finished the second season of Poldark which I'm a massive fan of I loved the first season and got about halfway through the second when it aired and um, wasn't able to finish it for, for scheduling reasons and so I finished that. Yeah, I think those are the two on on Masterpiece I watched and caught up with. And then I discovered, and you would think, I'm acting like this is like the discovery of some sort of new crazy medicine that cures cancer. <laughs> I discovered the Masterpiece Masterpiece podcast. And I've been traveling, I've been traveling a bit for, for, for my work and, and have been listening to that nonstop and it's wonderful. Oh, cool. But, I mean, I highly recommend Grant Chester. Um, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. I also went to see Baby Driver. Oh, how did you like that? I did do that. You know what? I really enjoyed it. It's high octane for sure. It almost felt like a musical in that. Um, the music is so closely tied to the story and, and the soundtrack is used to that rhythm and scenes so consistently that they really almost were musical numbers, interesting. Uh, which was interesting because it's, you know, there's a lot of car chases and, um, yeah. And, and I enjoyed it. I sort of thought to myself, if I was, you know, if I was a a 15 year old in high school and my friends and I went to see that I'd probably be obsessed and go see it like six times right <laughs> um, you know it kind of has that that cult it's very quotable it's very flashy it's very pretty and stylized and you know everyone in it is beautiful <laughs> and so it just has that it sort of has that quality to it I enjoyed it cool uh, but how about you I haven't seen anything in the theater, but I did finally get to see uh, 20th Century Women, which is one that I'd been wanting to see for a while. Um, have you seen that one? I have not, and I really want to. Was it good? It was good. Yeah, she's really good. I guess the tone of it was a little bit different than I was expecting. It's got a little bit more of a cynical vibe to it, um, which was huh. fine. I think it suited the film, but it was a little bit, uh, yeah, it was a little bit more cynical than I guess I expected. But, you know, she's reliably good. I was impressed by really all the the women. Um, Elle Fanning's really good in it. Greta Gerwig is really good in it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all around nicely, nicely done. It, it's one of those movies where I was trying to think, you know, um, 
how it stacked up because you know there was she was one of those people who was maybe thought of as very likely to get a nomination and she did not end up getting a nomination i'm talking about annette benning this year and um right so where it kind of fit in with the other performances and it is interesting it just shows how hard it is to measure one performance versus another in some years you know like some years there's like something that's like really definitively the best performance of the year and then other years there's just different kinds of performances this is you know like when you look at Meryl Streep and Florence Foster Jenkins and Annette Bening in 20th Century Women those performances are you know worlds apart they're polar opposites and I I don't really think one is better than the other. It's just different, you know? And so it's kind of interesting right. when you start thinking about the awards stuff because, I don't know, it's just a point of view. Yeah. Yeah, it's, well, it's, yeah and it's just so, it's just so murky. Yeah. It's, it's so murky, I agree. And um, I'm curious to see it well, kind of compare... Yeah, as we've talked about, it's rare that subtle performances get rewarded. It's really rare that subtle performances get rewarded, and when they when they do, it's it's typically I think in the supporting <laughs> categories rather than lead categories. Um, yes. Every once in a while, you'll get like a supporting, you know, actor or actress who who kind of sneaks in, but it's it's kind of rare. So the other thing that I wanted to mention because it's it's tangentially related to all of this, which is that there was more casting announced for the Mamma Mia sequel, um, which is the last time we did an episode, I think was the time we talked about the fact that like the big four had signed on for it. According to IMDb, Merrill, Amanda Seyfried, uh, Colin Firth and Pierce Brosnan. And I kind of said at the time, I was like, well, Dominic Cooper isn't in this and Christine Baranski isn't attached. And I kind of wondered if, if they would, and both of them, are yeah. now listed, so they both are part of it. And uh, Lily James, uh, who's a British actress, she's really? yeah, she's most known, I think, for the recent Cinderella, the live action Cinderella. Um, mm-hmm. She is yeah. playing, as I understand it, uh, the young Meryl Streep character, Meryl Streep's character when she was younger. Oh, do you know what's so bizarre is that I've watched a couple movies with her lately. Oh, yeah, um, I've obviously seen the Cinderella. I, I, she's a baby driver. She's also in a film called Air and Jay Courtney, and it's, it's not the greatest film. But I, I noticed that she, um, she has a bit of, and I, I actually thought this before you said it, she has a bit of the Meryl Street chameleon thing going on. Hmm. She dyes her hair, and she changes, you know, she changes character, and she truly, she looks like a different person. Interesting. And she's not changing much. And she and I just noticed the correlation and the similarity with Meryl Streep, and she's underrated. She's definitely underrated. Cool. Well, yeah. I'll... And I just don't think she's had the, she just hasn't had the, the chance to kind of, to shine as a true lead. I mean, I know Cinderella, you know, Cinderella's not the mediest characters. So... Um, but yeah, so I think it's really interesting. She's playing her young. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? This I, It sort of depends upon how big any of these roles are, of course, but maybe this will be her, you know, bigger exposure to North American audiences. I think she's she's much better known in the UK, I think, than here. Because she's done some TV stuff over there, too. Yeah. Yeah, she's in um, 
Downton Abbey. Yeah. And she um, she did Kenneth Branagh's Romeo and Juliet in the West End. Oh, okay. Um, with Richard Madden, and I think was very well reviewed for in particular. Cool. And not everybody in the show was so. Yeah, she's good. She's very good. She did a horrible film called *The Pride and Prejudice and Zombies*, and even in that, she's just totally charming. Right. I did know that she was in that. I haven't seen that, but I did know that she was in that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's quite terrible. Cool. Well, let's segue into before and after. So this was uh, the first time that I kind of <laughs> not forced you to watch one of these, but this was kind of my fault. I was like, let's watch this one. And the reason <laughs> for it, as I explained to you, I don't know if I included this in the in the podcast last time or not. The reason I was kind of interested in watching this one is when I was doing research for the postcards from the edge episode, Merrill did this interview uh, at the, this long form interview at the 90th street Y, which she's done a couple times. They did it again for Florence Foster Jenkins and a couple, at least one other time, I think. And uh, so they take audience questions and it was, I think that interview was around 2000 and somebody brought up, this movie before and after and they said um you know why do you think it wasn't received better than it was and i was very interested because it was probably the only time that i've heard meryl streep be kind of critical of a director she was critical of the director uh i am not even sure how to say his name barbette or barbet schroeder is his name i I think it's barbette barbette okay So this was not his first movie. You know, I mean, he he directed Jeremy Irons to an Oscar in Reversal of Fortune, which also, you know, which also co-starred Glenn Close, who, of course, is a, you know, fixture of this podcast. We mentioned her in many episodes. He did one with Mickey Rourke and Faye Dunaway. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head what else he had done. And he did Single White Female. I know oh, yes. That. Yes. And, um, Reversal of Fortune and Single White Female were the two that stood out to me. I mean, the film the film has pretty decent pedigree. I mean, I see why actors signed on. I mean, the screenplay was written by, you know, a screenwriter who wrote Silence of the Lambs. So right. I mean, we're, not, we're not talking about, <laughs> we're not talking about, you know, um, shoddy, shoddy filmmakers. It was, a, it was a pretty solid team going in. Right. Yeah, well, and I think that's that's the thing is I think for this particular thing there are a couple things at work. One is so we should kind of I should continue talking about what Meryl was was somewhat critical yeah. of with this movie, which is that she said that uh, she didn't particularly like the way it was shot, and in, she felt like there was a little bit of life sucked out of it, and the explanation was that um, back in the old days, what they used to do is they kind of used to have actors, this was for matching audio and uh, the actual, the, the, the motion picture part of it up in post-production because with, with different angles and different camera work, basically what ends up happening is a lot of times what they used to do was shoot one actor at a time, you know, their reaction. So they would basically, so using this um, 
particular movie as an example. So if there was a scene between Meryl Streep and Liam Neeson, they would shoot one version of it where they would mostly stay focused on Meryl. And then they would shoot another one where they stayed mostly focused on Liam Neeson. They would shoot full coverage where both were in the shot, you know. And I'm sure they still shoot that way. But what she was saying was back in the old days, actors had to be really careful not to step on each other's lines. They basically, like one actor had to kind of take a massive step back in terms of vocal projection, just so that it was easier to match the the audio to the motion picture part. And at some point before this movie was made, the technology had come along where, where it wasn't really necessary to do that anymore. And so there was overlapping going on in a lot of movies and people could kind of play the scene in real life how they would if it were a play or you know like real life basically but she said that the way barbette schroeder approached this was the old way where he would want yeah the actors to not get in each other's way and so she said she ended up feeling like a robot she said it was very unnatural and she didn't understand why he wanted to shoot that way she made it sound as if they you know had a basically just couldn't understand the other's approach. She, she did not understand why he it's was... It's noticeable, though. Yeah. I mean, having not known that about that interview, um, one of the first things I noticed in the film was this sort of weird stiffness yep. that the actors had an issue. The timing, it, it, I mean, you can feel it. I mean, I felt it when the daughter, the daughter sitting and playing at the piano and the Amnesia comes in to sit down with her, and they're they're laughing with each other felt time. Right. That's forced. Right. Particularly from Liam Neeson. And so I mean I picked up on it right away. I mean, it's just got a weird vibe from the get go. Yeah. It and I think there's another reason for that, which is that I happen to think um it's one of the worst scripts that Meryl has been a part of too. I there's so many yeah. just cringy moments in here that yeah. you you find yourself going why you know how how is this how is it this week i mean it's hard to believe it really is it is coming a, from the screenwriter it came from right it is a really weak script and i don't know how much of it has to do with the fact that it was based off of a book um you know it was adapted from a book i don't think it's a true story or anything like that but it was a it was a novel that had come out you know some years before so i'm not sure if maybe the source material wasn't great i don't know but um it just it's really clunky in a way that is very distracting at at points and i think there are there are a lot of issues with this but you know one of the things is like the whole story is kind of I mean, you understand the reason that this story is being told the way it is, but at the same time, like halfway through the, I don't know, I guess maybe we shouldn't even get into this until we talk about yeah. the plot. Well, but. let me, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, throw, I'll throw our plot synopsis out there for everybody, uh, for those who haven't seen it, which is probably a lot of people. Right. Um, so Meryl, Meryl Streep and Liam Neeson are a married couple. They have two kids played by... Um, uh, Eddie Furlong, who's their teenage son, and Julia Weldon, who's their younger daughter. And Meryl Streep is a, a local doctor slash pediatrician. Um, her husband, is Liam Neeson, is a sculptor, artist, and uh, the local sheriff comes by. Actually, it starts earlier than that. Basically, a young girl, a high school girl, shows up dead, and it turns out to be their teenage son's girlfriend. 
and he's accused of murdering her. And that's sort of where it starts. So the whole film deals with the family dynamic of what happens when their son is accused of murder. Right. And that's basically it in a nutshell. Yeah. And um, I think one of the important... We don't want to give away too much, but one of the, the issues becomes a complete disagreement on between the two parents, between Meryl Streep and Liam Neeson on how to approach this. So Liam Neeson is, is very much playing a hothead who just, he destroys evidence and he is just like really, really hotheaded, very defensive all the time. Will do anything for his son basically. And Meryl Streep is more even keeled and more level headed, more reasonable really. And yeah. suggests that telling the truth is, you know, the the thing to do, which is what I was starting to say a minute ago. I don't know how to articulate it, but like this movie is kind of unnecessary because if they had just told the truth, the story, it like he would have gotten <laughs> off. Like it wasn't, you know, it was well, clearly an accident. And yeah, and it's, and it's, yeah, it clearly has nothing to do with what actually happened. Right. I mean, I think the, the, the yeah, the whole film is an exercise in exploration, it's an exercise in exploration of what happens when your parents are idiots. Right. <laughs> I mean, sort of from beginning to end, I think, um, one of the things I noticed from the get-go is sort of a lack of nuance. Um, which tells me that they didn't have a lot to work with and that you can also feel, and this, this could be a total projection, but I just felt like that set must have been extraordinarily stressful because you can feel the actors, um, at least to me, they feel, it seems, it, it reads as if they've shut down. Right. Like they've almost that given up. they are up. Barely, barely functioning as actors. Right. Well, struggling on screen you just see the struggle right well one of the things I always like to say I, I'm sure I've said this to you although I don't know if I've said it on the podcast here or not is as actors you and I have both had the experience I'm sure in fact maybe in the same show although I'm not thinking of one in particular mm-hmm. but we both <laughs> know what it's like as an actor to be trapped in a production that you know is bad and there's nothing you can do about it. Like at a certain point, you're you're like, oh, this isn't going to work. And you do your best, but you know fundamentally like it's not working. And no matter what you do, yeah. there's something about it. That happens sometimes. And that's what this movie feels like. It's just people yeah. who are kind of like, why did we sign on for this thing? You know, and it... I don't know. I, I also, I feel like I'm being maybe a little bit harsh because I actually, I don't hate this movie by any stretch. I think there are a couple redeemable things in it. But, and actually, I don't think Meryl's bad in it. I think there are some moments where she's pretty good. Um, but I don't know. This is just, this is one of the few question marks in her um filmography and actually maybe that's an interesting question is you know if you were handed this script what can we let's try to kind of rationalize and we're projecting of course because we don't know what what drew Meryl Streep to this movie but if you get this script and you see who's attached as your co-stars you know in addition to Liam Neeson who had just come off Schindler's List you've got Alfred Molina in a supporting role although that was a very early career for him John Hurd there are a couple other folks in it who might be kind of interesting you know who who she might go okay it'd be fun to work with that person or whatever Uh, again well 
well-known director, well-known screenwriter. Um, but then this script, what do you think it was that, that initially drew Meryl to this character in this movie? I think I'm trying to imagine what, what that, uh, what that film looks like on paper. And it, it's obviously more tempered. Um, you, you know, you're looking at words on paper. It doesn't have, um, it doesn't have the performance aspect. I imagine as an actor, if I looked at a script that um, addressed the emotional side of what happens to a family in a situation like that, that that would be something I would want to explore as an actor. Like, I would want to jump on that opportunity. My guess is there were rewrites. You know, you just never know how it's going to come out in the end. That's kind of the flaw of this movie is it seems like they were all about contrasts in this movie. Like you say, the the mother and the father could not be more different. And I think it's supposed to like show us, you know, where one succeeds. It's so conceptual. It is. And it's like, it is so obnoxious too because... Liam Neeson, it, like it's almost like he doesn't have a rational thought in his head. I mean, like his react—he is so reactionary and so over the top, and um, and in a lot of ways, like that kind of goes through the whole thing. Like the, it, it's it, even in like their jobs, you know, he's he's the artist, yeah. she's the like, you know, come like, you know, she's the the doctor, the pediatrician. It's like everything is opposite and. Um, even in scenes where emotions, like within the same scenes, they're trying to do too much with opposites where like the, the big thing is so about halfway through the movie, um, Edward Furlong, who plays the son, the one who's accused of killing his girlfriend, tells them how he you know, tells them the truth, tells them what happened. So yeah, what happened up until this point in the movie? They first of all, he doesn't show up that character until 20 minutes, 25 minutes into the movie. Um, and you know, it's it when they the first scene that he is in, it's when the parents visit him in jail, if I'm remembering correctly. I think that's the first time you meet uh-huh. the kid, and yeah. he he doesn't speak, he refuses to speak to his parents, and so they're kind of setting up this like, oh, he must have this like tortured existence he must really hate his parents and then like two scenes later he's you know like (laughs) laying it all out for his parents and he's talking about you know this basically misunderstanding with his girlfriend and he says things like well you know i really wanted to bring her around you know i told her you guys were cool you know he just says these clunky lines and it's not it's not edward furlong's character but it's just like really clunky dialogue and, yeah. you know, he says like, oh, I knew you guys were, were cool and you would be great with her. And, you know, says things like that. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Two scenes ago, he hated them so much he wouldn't even speak to them. And like, then he had this awful fight with Liam Neeson that was referenced where like, you know, they had this horrible fight the morning that everything happened. And, you know, they were, they were uh-huh. always fighting. And then they're, you know, bonding and they're covering up evidence and you know like it just was so absurd because there was no consistency well and again clunky dialogue the one that really stuck out to me was you know somebody this happens more than once this is one of the moments actually i really appreciated meryl's performance 
was uh, when she gets the call from somebody who's just calling them to yell at them over the phone and say like, You're, we don't hear what the person says. We hear Meryl's reaction to it. But she picks up the phone. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's somebody from the town calling to say like, your kid's awful, you know, whatever. And uh, I loved her yeah. in that scene because it felt really authentic. She just kind of gets, you know, real short of breath. And you, it, it, you can see that she's just really trying to come up with something to say. But she's also just stunned and shocked and overwhelmed but the same thing happens later with or maybe even before that with Liam Neeson where he answers the phone and somebody is again just kind of calling to to yell at them and and tell them what an awful kid they have and of course Liam Neeson is much more reactionary and, and starts yelling at the guy and so Liam Neeson hangs up on the guy and Julia Weldon the little girl says go dad you're so cool and I thought like oh it, it it's just so, so bad. The dialogue is think, so um, awful. It's it's not yeah, real. And, no, and I think I think so often you know actors get blamed for that, and you just can't tell me that that Liam Neeson and Meryl Streep and Alfred Molina and and even even Eddie Furlong, who was you know sort of all over the place at the time, and 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 Julia Walden, who I think. I think proved herself in this film, even with the clunky dialogue. Yeah, she's very good. <laughs> you know, she she did. She 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 held her own. Um, you know, they they often get blamed for it, and the truth is, like, I think I found myself yelling at the screen most of the time. Like Liam Neeson was such a hothead, I didn't understand why. Yep. Um, it wasn't a truthful exploration of sort of the emotional state of parents in a situation like that because I just kept wondering why Meryl Streep's character wasn't, you know, just telling him to sit down and shut up. Right. Or, you know, take more of a stand for her son. I find the script very misogynistic. Meryl Streep's character is so passive throughout the entire film. Mm, yeah. She never stands up to her husband, even though he's being just insane. Yeah, he really is. He's he's talking like, oh, he's just emotionally insane. He's doing things that could put their son in jail for a lifetime. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like, and and um, no no pushback when her husband seems to just assume that their son is guilty without having talking to him talk to him or knowing what's wrong. Right. Um, so, and I didn't pick up on that at first. I didn't pick up on the misogyny until the end of the film when she makes the choice to tell the grand jury the truth and the reaction of the characters, the attorney played by Alfred Molina, Liam Neeson's reaction to her. I mean, she basically gets mansplained too. Well, and manhandled by, you know, when, when she comes out yes. of the, when she comes out of the courtroom and tells Alfred Molina, who plays their lawyer, she says, I told them. And at first he doesn't know what, what she's talking about. And he just thinks that she's testified also. Okay. From a complete, from a legal standpoint, what kind of, uh, situation is this that the parents would be in there without the attorney present? Is that that seemed really strange to me? Why isn't the attorney you mean in there the with jail? Her? Well, when she testifies, when she when she tells the grand jury uh, the truth about what her son has done. Yeah, no, they. I mean, as far as I know, with grand juries, your attorney is present at all times. Right. That seemed really now, strange. She was to a me. witness, so not the client. So. Um, she she could have had her own representation in there, I suppose. It wouldn't have been Alfred Molina. 
and I, you know, being a civil attorney who doesn't, you know, I've done, you know, a limited amount of litigation, but, um, yeah, the whole thing is weird. What's also weird is that, oh, God, Alfred Molina's character is just rough for me, very rough for me, because this, this whole caricature of an attorney eating a Subway sandwich yes. as he, like, craftily talks to you about a murder case is just, I mean, I'm sure people like that exist, but it's just not accurate. Well, and it's a cliche. Uh, We've you know, seen that. Criminal attorneys take their jobs very seriously. Right. It it just seems like such a cliche to me because I've seen that in it several was. other movies. The like the whole thing is like, oh, this attorney who's so overworked that you know, oh, I was in meeting after meeting after meeting. I'm sure attorneys are that busy, but you know, like it just seems so unprofessional. And so I think it was we're supposed to you know get a little insight into him as a character during that which is you know it doesn't tell us enough to be interesting but going back i, I kind of want to complete the thought with when meryl streep testifies sure. um and she comes out so first of all i mean I, even if alfred molina isn't her representative he's the lawyer for her son so he should be in there for you know like that's information that is relevant to the trial. It yeah. just is so strange that he wouldn't be in there. Yeah, 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 no. He, he, uh, I, we'll get one of, we, we need to get somebody who's actually appeared before a grand jury to, I'll look it up. I'm, okay. I'm curious. I mean, I think instinctually he should have been in there. Like, that's my two cents. Like, it doesn't make any sense for him not to, not to have been in there. Right. Um, yeah. Um, I would, still on the Alfred Molina character, um, did you have a chance to read Roger Ebert's review of this yes. film? Yes, yep, I did. So I think it was my um, uh, my favorite part of the review, uh, <laughs> talking about Alfred Molina's character, because he says, uh, he says something to the effect of, I think it was his review, where he says, you know, he seems, um, he seems short on curiosity as to what actually happened with this client. <laughs> where I think this misses the boat is that, you know, the attorney never seems to ask what actually happened and doesn't seem to care. And that's just not... Right. It, it just didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work. My my favorite tidbit from the Ebert review was at the very end because he, he noticed two, yeah. two things about the end scene, one of which I did not pick up on before I read the review, but the other I did. Uh, this is jumping ahead, but at the very end of the movie, the movie ends with this like happily ever after shot of the whole family taking a canoe. It's so trip. weird. And the thing that I did notice was that so they're in this tiny canoe. I mean, it fits four people, but you know, it's it's a canoe, and they have this bridge go up for them as if it were this giant boat. And I a remember massive, thinking, massive. Bridge. <laughs> yes. And there's no other boats on the water. So it's going up for them. And I remember thinking, why would that bridge be going up for them? It doesn't make any sense. So Ebert pointed that one out. But the other thing he pointed out was that it was kind of ironic given that she had just done the River Wild like a year before that, that, you know, was about as, this family being taken hostage, you know, this kind of other family saga thing. And, you know, yeah, which was kind of a cool observation. But um, you know what I noticed that they rode by in that shot. They rode by in the canoe, and they just all looked so miserable. Yeah, it's like I could sort of, and this is totally me projecting. But if I'm Meryl Streep, I'm saying, "Oh my God, why am I in this canoe?" Yeah. <laughs> oh, why? Yeah, 
I don't know. There's just this this seems like one of those, like I say, where you kind of go, there's something promising about the people involved, but then when you're actually doing it, it's just not something is lost in translation. And I don't know what it was, but um I wasn't crazy about Edward Furlong's uh, characterization in this movie either it's it, that's another thing that kind of was no. a little bit all over the place because he kind of plays this um i don't i don't even know how to describe him he's just this like i mean he's a teenage kid but i don't buy for a second that he's you know <laughs> i don't know i i, I don't I got know the sense he had no idea what to do right right after um the girlfriend dies he 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 does a runner. He runs, and so for the first part of the film, he's nowhere to be seen. And they end up picking him up. And there's this whole storyline where the parents have been getting postcards from all over the country and not doing anything about it, which totally threw me off and made no sense whatsoever. And um, turns out he's been in town the whole time, hiding at his friend's house. Never really get a clear picture of why he's done any of this. Right. I mean, you can sort of infer that he was terrified and didn't know what to do, but that doesn't read, and you don't get any screen time to explore that. Horribly disjointed scene at the prison where, you know, he doesn't speak at all, but then two scenes later, he's, like, unloading with his parents, like, they're his best buds, and it's kumbaya with dad, and, yeah. It's the writing. And he's talking openly about, you know, having sex with this girl. I mean, it just is so... And and talking about it as if he's some like you know, been around the block a million times like forty year old like that's what it was is like they couldn't decide if he were a yeah. teenager or like you know a peer of of the parents and it just I don't know he kind of I don't know his he he had kind of low energy for the whole movie to me too it just seemed like he just kind of was. It was, I got the sense that he was very uncomfortable. Like, he didn't know how to play the scenes, and so he was very hesitant and, like, couldn't quite give total emotion to anything because, I, I, you know, yeah. he just didn't know what to do and seemed very uncomfortable. Well, and I, I read at least one review where he got the best review from this one particular one, and they were saying how it was almost a silent film performance, and they called him, like, haunting in it, you know, and I did not get that sense at all. Like, it was just kind of a... No. I don't know, but I... So let's, let's talk about Julia Weldon. Sure. <laughs> um She's probably the only human, really human character, non-caricature in the film. Right. And I think that's a tribute to her as an actress, because I don't, I don't envy any kid who's handed that dialogue. Right. And she narrates the film, and I thought that was a strange choice to have, you know, it's one thing to do like a, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, where somebody is narrating the film from their adulthood and like looking back at this time and it kind of has that feel to it right but they they chose to have julia weldon you know at that age narrating it as if she's looking back and um you know and so some of the dialogue at the end when she's sitting up in the tree and writing it just does not ring true for somebody her age and man to like to like to, to, to do it with grace. Right. <laughs> and maturity. Yeah. 
Well, and good for her for, like you say, sticking in there because she comes across well. I think Meryl comes across well. I, I leave her out. She did what she could with yeah. what she had. But, and, you know. It's definitely not a bad performance for Meryl Streep. It's just there's not enough of her and too much of the Liam Neeson hot-headedness. And we know what a great actor he is, too. You know, so I, I'm not even really inclined to blame him. I just, there are so many, no. um, like the scene where he comes tearing out of his, uh, you know, his grand jury thing. It's like, it's just like this tornado of, of anger, you know, that he's coming out of there like screaming about how he's not going to testify. And I don't know, there's just so much, um, you know, the other the other question I had is so this movie is called Before and After and that refers to the like be, before the crime is committed and after. And what was interesting uh-huh. to me is there's probably about 3 minutes worth of before in this movie. The I mean there's like no <laughs> there's no real exposition in this movie because it just starts the day that this thing happens. There's like you say there's that scene uh, with the piano between Julia Weldon and Liam Neeson. And there's Meryl Streep, uh-huh. uh, you know, one minute scene, a pediatrician, you know, dealing with this kid before she's called downstairs to to help with the, the murdered girl who she doesn't know has a connection to her son at that point, of course. But there's no before in this movie. It's, it, it could be called and after because there's no before in this movie. And so I guess my question is, like, if there's more exposition... Does that help this movie at all? I think it would have been helpful to see Eddie Furlong's character before. To actually have Eddie Furlong speak would be helpful as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Throwing that out there. Um, did you have, um, let's, let's go positive a little. I know, um, we're kind of trashing this one. <laughs> did you have favorite moment? I know, I know. Did you, you mentioned the, 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 like the prank call or the call to the house was one of your favorite moments with with Meryl. Did you have any other favorite moments from the film? Like moments that stood out as like sort of shining beacons of hope? There were two. Um, Even though the dialogue is clunky, I like the scene uh, where she's in the bathtub and Julia Weldon comes in to try to talk to her and try to explain how she's feeling. I thought, um, I, I even like, it's, it's such a small moment, but you know, when Julia Weldon knocks on the door and Meryl says, you know, Uh I think, I think Liam Neeson's character's name is Ben. Does that sound right? Uh, Something. You know what? I can't even tell you. (laughs) Because I think... I I think what she says is Ben, can you give me a minute? And like that kind of, it was a very believable. Like you know, she's just trying to take a bath. You know what I mean? Like she's just trying to like have a minute of peace yep. in this in this chaos. And um, I, so I, I like that whole yes, scene. Yeah. Okay. And then I like the scene. Actually, her, the, I just referenced it. Actually, in the first couple minutes of the movie, I I, I like her interactions with the little kid. Um, it's you know, mm-hmm. it's small, but it's a it's a nice little scene. Um, yeah. What about you? Um, my favorite moments are when Julia comes in, Julia's character comes in um, to talk to her mom in the bathtub as well. And then a scene earlier between Meryl Streep and Julia Walden where she's telling her about the fight. That's really true. You know, you have a younger kid and they've promised their sibling they're going to keep their kids keep so much to themselves. Right. 
uh, unless you start to dig, and there was a lot of truth in that scene where she's sort of just spilling the beans to mom about what's really going on with her brother. And, um, yeah, so it's I feel like, um, I feel, I really do feel like the, one of the biggest issues was the writing. Um, and because it, it wasn't a very real exploration of, of, you know, all the nuanced, deep corners of people's emotions when something like this happens, it just tried to be very conceptual in right. terms of addressing this concept of how you protect your kid and, and what you do in that situation. And this sort of, this idea that the woman is angelic and principled and, I mean, even the shade Alfred Molina throws at Meryl Streep's character I know. when he gets sentenced. I know. Was it worth it? Right. I mean, it's so horribly condescending, and I just, I, I yeah, I don't, I don't know how Meryl Streep got through that without throwing something at somebody. Well, that actually reminds me of one of my other favorite scenes, which is when she kind of does, she gives it to Alfred Molina, that same scene talking about earlier when he's eating the sandwich. And he shows her. He shows them the. the that was pictures. one of the better moments in the film. Right, and she, you know, she says, "You can't do this. You can't just sit there eating your sandwich and show these pictures." You know, she's like, "I'm a doctor. There's not much I haven't seen, but this is not what you know. This is not what you're. This is not decent. What you're doing here." And you know, I, I like that when she stood up to him. There were a couple reviews that I read that said. The best scenes were between the two of them. That there were some real fireworks between the two of them, which I would agree with. I don't think it's Alfred Molina's fault. He was just playing a jerk, no. you know, like it's not the Agreed. actor's fault. But I still am not a fan of how harshly he, like, you know, after she comes out in that scene and says, "Well, I told the truth," he grabs her and like shoves her into another room, and you know, I, yeah. it, it was not, I, I wasn't a fan of that. Yeah, it it made me. It just made me very uncomfortable how um, how passive she was written, and I could see I could see Meryl Streep trying to find her strength. And with Alfred Molina, you know, when she sort of gets on him, is one of those places. But it's undercut by by a negative reaction to her taking a stand. Every time she takes a stand as a character, there are at least one man going, you're an idiot, why would you do that? You've ruined everything. Right. Um, and not a real exploration of, of, of what it means. Yeah, it just, it just made me uncomfortable. Yeah. The whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. Not not the best one that uh, has been made. But I no. I don't really fault the actors. I, I fault... No. I, I mean, from the sounds of it, really, the direction. Because I think that's probably where the stiltedness comes from. Maybe even more so than the clunky script. Yeah. But, um, yeah. If, You're probably right. I mean, actors can do a lot with a bad script. Right. It, you know, it's it's just... It's the... It's... Um, it's the perfect storm when things bad it just is right yeah there's no harmony on that set if nothing else and you no. you said I didn't get the sense they were laughing with each other right although Liam Neeson and Meryl are friends in real life so you know I'm sure it was yeah. um I'm sure it wasn't torturous in that regard but so we thought uh that it might be fun so well first of all let me say that um I I sent Meryl a message 
in between episodes here and I said, you know, I had this idea that once we got through all these movies that we would try to rank them. But I also thought maybe it would be kind of more interesting if we did that during the process. It would also probably be easier on us and easier to remember everything if we kind of had an ongoing ranking system. And it might be kind of fun for the audience to, you know, I don't know if they necessarily want to keep track, but, you know, like kind of see week by week where things filter in. So uh, this is the ninth movie now that we've done. So we've both uh-huh. prepared rankings of the movies that we've done so far. And I think going forward, what we're going to do is we're going to slot in the rest of the movies. So I think we'll, we'll each read our, our one through nine here for, for people now. I don't think in the future we'll go through our whole list. We'll just tell people what, you know, kind of is moving. Um, right. But uh, do you want to do you want to do your list of the nine movies that we've done so far? Sure. I struggled a little bit. It's hard. I know. Um, I think I think because I'm weighing there's like there's iconic performances and films versus what I actually in, enjoyed. Right. You know, just as as the experience of watching the film and balancing those two things. I mean, some are no brainers. Right. Um, but but there were a couple in the middle where I, I struggled ranking them. But here here's my ranking. So postcards from the edge still takes number one. Okay. Um. Two, um, two is out of Africa. I think both of those are nostalgic for me. They're in my top five. I don't think they're moving. Um, the Hours made number three for me. Okay. Four, four was Adaptation. Five, Deer Hunter. Six, Florence Foster Jenkins. Seven, Heartburn. Eight, She Devil. And nine, Before and After. Okay. We have similar structures to our list. Um, yeah, my number. I'm gonna go the opposite way. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go start at okay. the bottom and go up. Uh, my last one is before and after. I'm sorry, to we, we both have that at the bottom of our list. I feel bad about that, but it, it's the way it is. My number eight is heartburn. I I struggle a bit with the fact that I don't. Um, I don't know. My number seven is she devil, and so the idea of putting she devil above heartburn might raise a few eyebrows. Um, but there's something about uh, She Devil that kind of has stuck with me a little bit longer than Heartburn. I don't know why. So it is what it is. Uh, number six is Deer Hunter for me. Number five is Out of Africa. Number four is Florence Foster Jenkins. Number three is Adaptation. Number two is Postcards from the Edge, which I really thought about putting number one. And again, that one I probably mm-hmm. rewatch more than most of the others, but. Um, I'm going to stick with the hours at number one for now. Um, I might flip those at some point because postcards is just so great. But for now, I'm sticking with hours number one and postcards uh, number two. So we'll see. So those are our lists, and we'll. I feel uh, like you took a more you you took a quality approach, and I took um I took like a I took a nostalgic approach. Right, and there's I couldn't I couldn't not rank Deer Hunter higher because I'm. It's, you know, it just, it's the deer hunter. But I can't say that I enjoyed deer hunter more than I enjoyed Florence Buster Jenkins. Right. No, <laughs> that's, that's the one I struggle with most because it's that same thing. I mean, deer hunter is an iconic movie and I have it above she devil, which is not an iconic movie. You know what I mean? Like it's just above she well, devil. And I guess I should ask, are we ranking, let me, let me put it this way. Are we ranking the films as a whole? Or are we ranking Meryl Streep's performance in the film? It's a good question, and I don't really have a definitive answer. I think we could go either way. I think I, I think kind of maybe the whole experience, um, but 
it, it, you, yeah. you, you could make the argument either way. Because ch- I think it would probably change my ranking for sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll kind of, we'll futz with the list cool. and like I say, we'll, we'll add to it over, over time. But Heartburn's kind of at the bottom for now. But yeah, we've spent enough time kind of putting, putting our uh, stank on this movie. <laughs> But it's just, I, it's just, it could you know, be better. It started out like a little stilted and weird. And then by the end, it had just like devolved into insanity. Yeah. That's sort of how I felt about it. This movie is kind of an interesting. It's happening on camera. Yeah. It, it's kind of an interesting point in her career too. So the movie right before this is Bridges of Madison County, which is honestly, I mean, I know that movie kind of has a, yeah, I don't know that 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 movie's reputation yeah. is problematic in a lot of ways, but her performance in that movie is genuinely amazing. I mean, she really Brilliant. is good yeah. in Bridges of Madison County. Yeah, and right after this is Marvin's Room, which is it's a it's a supporting performance from her, but it's another really great performance. And um, so I don't know this this movie just kind of seems like it was. I'd be curious to know why what was appealing to her at in the early process here, what, what was so appealing about this movie? Because it was, it was an era in which she was doing really one movie per year. And she did two that year. She did this one and Marvin's room. So, um, there, it must've been interesting enough to her to, to get her to do more than one. But did you notice too, that she actually uses the phrase one true thing, which was going to be a movie that she, makes like two years later did yeah. you notice that moment no i didn't no that's awesome because it's another bit <laughs> of you... clunky dialogue when she says this could be our um... one true thing and i was like wait a second that's that's a different movie <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> did you see paul giamatti i didn't see paul giamatti where is paul giamatti in this movie he's he's in the grand jury room so she walks in she would have noticed except that i went i was digging through IMDb and in the trivia it says you can see Paul Giamatti so I rewound and and sure enough it's Paul Giamatti he's an extra he plays one of the grand jury Interesting. and he's like turning and he just watches her walk forward it's a hoot it's really funny I'm like hey Paul huh <laughs> interesting uh, well yeah. let's move on to our other uh, segments which would you like to do uh, for six degrees or movies Meryl was almost in movies Meryl was almost in Okay, I couldn't find a great connection. I've been trying to find ones with like, you know, either a co-star connection or something, and I just couldn't find one for this one. The The one I picked was, she was allegedly, Meryl was almost, uh, well, I shouldn't say almost played the part, because I don't know, but she was considered for the role that Helen Mirren played in Red. And the reason that I thought that was kind of interesting was Red seems like the kind of movie Liam Neeson would be in at this point. It's kind of that action-y, you know, thing that he... he that is in his wheelhouse at this point. So um, Liam Neeson is not in red, uh, but I don't know. That was the closest connection I could kind of do. I could see her in red. I think we talked about that in our, when we were just kind of doing that first pilot episode where we were talking about, she's outside of the river wild. She's never really done an action movie. And actually I think we might've specifically referenced red as like, you know, if she were going to do an action movie at this point, it would be kind of probably in that vein, you know? And, uh, Oh, yeah, and she would have been great. I agree. She would have been great. Yeah. Uh, so that's that. Our uh, 
six degrees last time was Stacy Keach, and the reason for that was I interviewed him for my other podcast, the Joni Mitchell podcast. So uh, I invite you to check out that interview if you're so interested. He really is uh, a fascinating guy. I mean, like he's he's really been he knows everybody uh, and has worked with yeah, everybody. He's got over two hundred credits on IMDb and you know, just has been in everything and is also well regarded, you know, Shakespearean actor and, and theater actor in general too. So he's really been there. Did you come up with any for Stacy Keach by chance? You know what? I'm going to be honest. I couldn't on my own because the only thing I could think of off the top of my head that Stacy Keach had been in was the, the, the long writers oh, and, yeah. um, prison break. <laughs> yep. And so I I I had to go look at his his um filmography on IMDb. Once I do that, I can, you know, I can make a direct connection. But did you come up with any on your own? I did. I I should be um forthcoming in the fact that I've also been listening to his audiobook. I might have mentioned that too. He's got a really nice audiobook. He he wrote a, you know, an audio well, he didn't write an audiobook. He wrote an autobiography a few years ago, but he does his own autobiography. So as I was preparing for the interview, I was listening to his book. So he referenced a lot of these projects. So I got a little bit of help in that regard and that I was reminded of some of these things, but um, actually, there's a connection to before and after because he one of the things that he's best known for is the movie American History X, which co-starred oh, yes. which co-starred Eddie Furlong. So um, there were a couple others. Oh, I I actually forgot he was in that. Yeah, that's sad. It's been a long time since I saw that one, and that is a brutal movie to get through. So I don't know if I'll be revisiting it's it anytime brutal. soon. Um, there were a couple no. other ones, though, that I thought of. There was one. Oh, you know what? What movie I really liked and didn't get much of a didn't get much of a shot. It was a couple years ago. A movie called Truth, uh, in which Robert Redford played uh, Dan Rather, and Kate Blanchett was in it. Oh, yeah. Um, Kate so, Blanchett. Yep, yeah. Robert Redford was a connection there, but also that same movie. Um, Dennis Quaid is in that movie. He was in Postcards from the Edge. And there was at least one other person. Oh, David Strathairn, I think, is in that movie, too. And he was in uh, River Wild. There are a few of these where, okay. you know, it, it wasn't hard to find connections. Oh, Stacey Keach was in the the one Jason Bourne movie that Matt Damon wasn't in, too. Maybe that's one I was thinking of with David Strathairn. Bourne Legacy? Yeah. I think that's one. Yeah, that's another one I remembered him from. But Matt Damon's kind of the connection there. Yeah, Um, and he's not in that one. So, yeah, there was somebody. I think that's the one that I'm thinking of with David Strathairn is in that one. Um, And there might have been somebody else. He's in in Nebraska with Bruce Dern. Did you just say that? No. Yeah, I know he was in because he 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 and Bruce Dern did a couple movies together. But Bruce Dern, I know we've connected somehow to Meryl Streep at some point, but I forget exactly how that happened so anyway will you explain who our next six degrees is because you threw somebody i've never heard of at me (laughs) you're showing your age back (laughs) um i picked zendaya and i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure our listeners know who she is but she's um she's got started you know as a disney kid on the disney channel and um um, I personally did not know who she was until she showed up on Dancing with the Stars. And yes, I do watch Dancing with the Stars. So I love it. <laughs> and um, uh, that was several years ago. And she's, 
she's just been developing a pretty nice career for herself. She just came out in um, the new Spider-Man movie. Okay. So. I'm not going to lie. I'm probably going to have to cheat because, like I said, I don't know who this person is. But I'll see what I can Hi. come up with. So Yeah. And people should email us their, their yes. answers if they can come up with one. Meryl Street Podcast at gmail.com. Please do email us. That would be fun. All right. So, Meryl, what is our next movie? We're moving into the 2000s. So, last episode, we decided to kind of do a film a film per decade and, and move, move through the present and then head back to the 70s and sort of start our decade adventure over. So, this, um, this next episode will be The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. Going, going big. This is one of her big ones. Yeah, we're going big after after before and after. <laughs> yeah, talk about performances that are polar opposites. Holy cow. Right. This is uh, right. World and that's part of the reason why we chose it. So it'll be fun. Yeah. Um cool. Well, you know, it's a flawed movie, but it's it's not it's not the worst movie you'd ever see either i mean it's and not. there are certainly redeemable things i would say <laughs> i mean it's kind of the theme of this podcast yes. isn't it the the female performances are are really what saved this movie it really is yes agreed and again i don't mean to sound disparaging about liam neeson eddie furlong alfred molina any of those people because actually i think they're all really good actors uh it's just they are it's just not the right project for anybody the whole thing is just baffling and strange i I mean i would call it strange more than bad yeah yeah and it's just it's very jolting yeah and in that way kind of interesting you know it's uh it's one that i would maybe have a hard time recommending to somebody i wouldn't necessarily recommend people go check out this movie but um if the curiosity factor has gotten the better of you there are worse ways to spend a couple hours it also seems to kind of move along it moves along at a reasonable clip it doesn't feel like a a torturous two hours or anything so um no that is true uh yeah so that's that we'll be back soon with devil wears prada and we look forward to it and uh thanks everybody for tuning in we'll talk to you next time thanks guys why do you think the film before and after that you did with liam neeson didn't do quite as well as some of your other films um, well, I have, a the- I have a theory about that, um, and part of it has to do with the way that it was shot. I think that that movie, in, I mean, I'm speaking very frankly, I'm glad you liked it, <laughs> but I felt like it, there was some life sucked out of it. I mean, it, it just, it didn't breathe, and part of the way that it was shot this is a technical thing. Um, in the old days, that you had to be quiet when the other person was speaking because they couldn't uh, match the track. Here's the technical part of my understanding of filmmaking. But in recent years, you know, you can overlap each other and people don't care about that so much. There are some people, directors, who maintain. Um, uh, a desire to keep the tracks clean and so if I was playing with uh, Liam and he would be speaking with me even if I overrode him in the scene he's your boy 
And he's scared and he's afraid. So that he'll, his voice could be heard. Do you know what I mean? He would say anything if he thought he could win back your approval. It was like... Um, Robots hey, acting, or you know, it, it, it just introduced an artificiality that uh, was very odd, and I didn't understand the need for it because they do have the technology now where you can speak at the same time, overlap each other, and have a usable uh, cut. Jeep's gone. Running again, and this time he'll never stop. No, he didn't take any clothes or food. I'm almost sure, Ben. Maybe he doesn't think he'll need them. Going, Mrs. Ryan, we'll see you day after tomorrow at 10. Yes, that's fine. Turn it up. Daddy? Yes. Stop. 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 Some immunity, some 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 kind of privilege so they can't try to make you snitch on your own place and blood. Why don't you write that? There's such a thing as the Fifth Amendment, you know. Yeah, ask my lawyer. 